Well, praise the Lord. Let me just start off by just sharing a little story with you, as I always like to do. When I was a kid, I used to enjoy watching professional wrestling. Every morning I would get up, turn on the TV, I think about maybe 9 o'clock, and sit down and watch Bobo Brazil, George the Animal Steel, Beautiful Bobby, let me see who else. Haystacks Calhoun, Chief J. Strongbow. How many remember that? And it was, if for, for someone my age, I used to love the action. You know, the bodies flying around, body flying outside the ring, flying kicks, flying elbows. And every once in a while, you see some blood gushing out. That was fun. I really enjoyed that. Until I found out that wrestling was staged. Because what I didn't know was that before the wrestlers got into the ring, they already determined who the winner was going to be. And so when the wrestlers got into the ring, they go through their battles, but just to, for entertainment. And you see, the point of the battle wasn't to decide who's going to win. It was just to put on the good show. So the winner, the one that was already determined to win, will go into the ring not to battle for victory, but from victory. Because you see, he battles knowing he already, he's already won. Isn't, isn't it interesting that those who come to the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are born again, has already won. We've already won. And we don't go through life battling to gain victory. We go in life Showing off to the world that the greater one that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. Amen. Amen. So tonight we're going to talk about walking in victory. And there are several keys that, uh, that I want to share tonight that will help us to walk in this victory that God has provided for us through his son. So if you have your Bibles or your electronic device, open up to uh, Romans chapter 8. And we're going to be begin reading there. Hallelujah. To walk in victory simply means that we have victory over everything that Jesus had victory over. So that means that we go through life knowing that we've already won. And boy, I tell you, that's a wonderful thing to know. And it's so important to really understand that. And we think about, well, what did Jesus have victory over? Well, we know that Jesus had victory over sin. We know that Jesus had victory over temptations. We know that Jesus had victory over sickness and disease. We know that Jesus had victory over the devil. We know that Jesus had victory over strongholds and everything that you can think of. And in everything that Jesus had victory over, we also have victory as well. And in Romans chapter 8, it says this. Nay, in all these things, verse 37... Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors that loved us. Very familiar passage of scripture. Paul says, in all these things, well, what things was he talking about? Well, if you look in verse 35, you'll find that he was referring to these very things. Verse 35 says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. So when Paul says, nay, in all these things, he was referring to these things right here, or you can add your own things. He says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Now, I want you to pay close attention to the word conquer, because we're going to take some time to look at that. The word conquer comes from two Greek words. The first word is hooper, which is H-U-P-E-R, which means above, beyond, or superior to. The second word is nikao, which is spelled N-I-K-A-O. And this word means to subdue, to overcome, and to conquer. So Paul uses the word hooper, nikao, which means to vanquish beyond or above, or to gain decisive victory. 
So what Paul is saying to us here in this verse is this. Nay, in all of these things, persecution, famine, peril, distress, all these things, and everything else that you might want to add to it. He says, in all of these things, we are surpassingly, overwhelmingly, decisively, abundantly, gloriously, triumphant, and victorious through him that loved us. It's interesting that Paul would say this to the church in Rome because the only conquerors that they know was the Roman Empire. Rome was considered to be the greatest and most powerful nation of that time. Everything that they've gained was by military power. And they were able to expand their empire and be able to, and they had the greatest uh, army, the, the best trained army, the great, greatest military strategists. I mean, they were it. They were used to conquering. They were accustomed to being victorious. They were used to overcoming. But Paul says, you are more than conquerors. What Paul is saying is this. He's not saying that you're a conqueror. He's saying you're more than that. He's saying you're more of a conqueror than the Roman Empire. Because he says, in all of these things, you are more You are overwhelmingly, decisively, abundantly, surpassingly victorious. Just to give you a little clear picture to help you understand what Paul is saying. Let's say, for instance, we're all a football team. And the name of our football team is Faith Christian Center. Every one of us are all members of that team. And we're about to face the New England Patriots, the three-time Super Bowl champions. So we go out in the field, we meet them, and we beat them, 35 to 34. Now, we probably would be happy just to walk away with that win. But we just barely won the game. And that's not really achieving much. You know, to be less than a conqueror is to be defeated. And you're not really achieving anything. To just barely be a conqueror or to just barely win, you're not really accomplishing much. That's not what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying here is this. Let's say we go out and meet the New England Patriots again. We meet them a second time. We go out in the field. We face the three-time Super Bowl champions with Tom Brady and Gronk and all these guys. And we beat them. 135 to nothing. We didn't just win. We overwhelmingly, decisively, abundantly, surpassingly beat them. In other words, we just beat the living snots out of New England Patriots. That's what we've done. That's what Paul is talking about here. So when we face our battles, and you know, it is said that there are some people who are coming out of a storm. There are some people who are in a storm. And there are those that are heading towards a storm. But in whatever category you might fit in, in any of those three, decisively, overwhelmingly. In other words, whenever we win, we win big. That's what God has predetermined us. In the beginning, he predetermined that we are to be winners, not just barely winning, but to win mightily, overwhelmingly. And that's what Paul is saying here when he says we are more than conquerors. We're more than that. And that's what we were designed to do. You know, it's interesting too. I don't want you to think that now that you know that we have been predetermined to win, so every time we face the battle, we don't go in it to win, but to show that the greater one in us is far greater than he that is in the world. Because we know we're going to win big. But don't stop thinking that you're going to be a superhero. Because all of our wins that we gain is, all, is only the result of our union with Christ. Because Paul says we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. So don't think that it's all about you, that you're the one that won and you're the one that beat the New England Patriots. No, it's through him that we're able to win overwhelmingly, decisively, abundantly, and convincingly. Amen. 
Let me read this to you from another translation. In Romans 8.37, in the Amplified Version, it says this. Yet amid all of these things, we are more than conquerors and gain a surpassing victory through him who loved us. And let me read that to you from the New Living Translation. It says, despite all of these things, and think about all the things that you might be going through. Despite my unemployment, despite my financial lack, despite my sickness, despite my marriage problem, despite whatever it is that's, that you're struggling with, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. So we have been predetermined not just to win, but to, be, to win big. <clears throat> We've been predetermined to win gloriously, triumphantly, overwhelmingly, convincingly, decisively. That's how God wants it. That's how God predetermined us to do so. So we are secure in Christ knowing that. Look at what Paul says in verse 31 of Romans 8. If God be for us, who can be against us? I like what Psalm 118 verse 6 says. It says, the Lord is for me or the Lord is on my side. What shall I fear? What can man do unto me? That's a man who's confident and knows that he has the victory. I like Jesus. Go to John chapter 16. Jesus was a man who knew he was a winner. He walked like a winner. He talked like a winner because he knew he was a winner. Jesus was already predetermined to win, not just barely win, but to win convincingly. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God said right from the beginning, when he spoke to the serpent, he says, the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. Already prophesying that Jesus is going to win, and he's going to win big. Look at what Jesus says in chapter 16 of John's gospel in verse 33. He says, <clears throat> the last part of that verse, he says, in this world you shall have tribulation or pressure. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Isn't it interesting that Jesus had not even accomplished a thing, yet he's already claiming victory over the world? Go to me to John's gospel, the first chapter. John chapter 1. <coughs> Here we have... John the Baptist baptizing people at the River Jordan. And as he was baptizing them, he saw Jesus coming. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus hadn't started his ministry yet. And he's already being proclaimed as one who takes the sins of the world. John uh, chapter 12 and verse 31, you don't need to turn there. It says this, Jesus himself said this. Now the ruler... Listen to what he says. Now, the ruler of this world will be cast out. Again, he had not accomplished a thing. And, but when I say that, I'm saying he did not come and to be raised from the dead and to be seated at the right hand of the Father. He hadn't even come close to doing that. But yet he was already claiming victory. And he wasn't looking forward to just barely making it. He was looking forward to an overwhelming, decisive victory. The Bible says that it's for this reason that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So he was already a winner. He talked like a winner. He walked like a winner because he knew he was a winner. So his victory is our victory. Romans chapter 6 said that when Christ died, we also died with him. It also said that when he was raised from the dead, we also were raised. And therefore, he says, reckon yourselves to be alive or reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive unto God. So in the same way that we died with him and in the same way that we was raised up with him, the same way we have victory with him. Amen. Amen. Listen to what the scripture says. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So his victory means our victory. We're just winners, man. Glory to God. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in verse 57, says this. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Who gives us the victory? God does. But not just any victory, not just barely victory, but a victory that is overwhelming, convincingly, surpassingly. Go to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. First John chapter 5. Jesus says in John 16, 33, Be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. The same John who wrote the gospel of John writes here in chapter 5 and verse 4, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. How many of you born again believers here? Well, the Bible says you have overcome the world just as Jesus overcome the world. And he says, And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Verse 5 says, who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Go there. We're taking a journey through the scriptures of the New Testament to show how, victor- how the Bible says that we are victorious. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to read this from the Amplified Version in verse 14 says this, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumph. Hallelujah. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You understand that Paul said this because based on what he went through in ministry, he was beaten, he was persecuted, he was stoned, he was in prison, he was caught in a shipwreck. I mean, he There was constant danger wherever he went. Constant threat of of death wherever he went. But yet the Bible says, I can do all things. I can endure all things. I can come against all things through Christ who strengthens me. Glory to God. We're winners. In this world, Christ, through Christ, we are more than conquerors. Go with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And in verse 15, it says this. When he, meaning God, had disarmed the rulers and authorities or principalities or powers, he, meaning God, made a public display of them, having triumphed over them, through him, that is through Christ. In other words, when I look at this, that word triumph, it implies a victorious procession. In ancient times, when a nation conquered another nation, take the spoils and take prisoners, like the king that they've conquered, their generals and maybe other important officials, And then they would take them back to their city. And they would march down the city street. And all of the people were welcoming them with victory, with flowers being thrown at them, waving banners and everything else, shouting for victory because their soldiers were coming back victoriously. And as they were marching down the street, they were also bringing all of their fruits or all of the spoils of war. They were also making a public display of the prisoners that they've also captured as they go through this victory procession. And you see the prisoners and in the spoils of war being brought through and made, being made a public display or public spectacle in front of all of those people, which signifies their victory. That's what this word is implying. God, through his son, made a public spectacle of the devil And in front of the entire universe, marching them down the streets, letting the world know that the devil's been defeated. Glory to God. That's the 50 procession that this Bible is talking about. That's what God did through his son. That's what makes us winners. Because the devil has been defeated. He's been made a public spectacle 
and been shown before the entire universe that he is defeated. He's lost. There's no win in him. There's no fight in him. He's a lost foe. Glory to God. So, knowing your position and place as a conqueror is the first key to being or, or to walking in victory. The second key is developing a conqueror's attitude. In other words, having a winner's attitude. Go with me to Romans chapter 12. Now that we know that we've been predetermined to win convincingly, we need to develop and maintain an attitude of a conqueror. And we saw that Jesus was that example because he walked like a winner, he talked like a winner because he knew he was a winner. But it's interesting that even though we may know what the scriptures say, there's still so many of us that are still struggling. There are many of us even tonight that are struggling with sin, and the only one that knows about it is you and God. There are many of us here who are probably struggling with, with bad habits. There are probably some of us here tonight that have anger issues. You're angry all the time. You, the slightest thing just sets you off. Perhaps maybe you're struggling with unforgiveness, which is a huge thing. Somebody hurt you. Somebody betrayed you. Somebody did you wrong, and you can't find yourself to forgive that person. Maybe that's what you're struggling with. And no matter how, long, how many times you try fighting it, you still find yourself falling in defeat. Well, the first thing we need to know is that we've been made winners. Know your place as a conqueror. He's already predetermined that we are winners and we win big. And then we need to change the way we think about ourselves and about our circumstances. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, it says this. Another familiar passage of scripture. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. There are three words in this verse that I want to focus on tonight. The first word is the word conformed. That word means to fashion alike or to conform to the same pattern. It also means to put on the form, the fashion, the appearance of another. It may refer to anything that pertains to the habits, the manners, the behavior, the dress, the style of living, the type of music, etc., 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 of others. Paul says that we are not to fashion ourselves to the things of this world. Now, allow me to park on this particular subject for a moment. Because as I was preparing for this lesson, this verse really stood out for me. Paul is telling us that we are not to fashion ourselves by the things of the world. But it's unfortunate, a strong sense in my spirit tonight that there are some of you here tonight that are struggling with worldliness. There's a strong spirit of worldliness in the church. Something that Andrew Bonard said. Andrew Bonard was a minister in the 19th century from Scotland. He said this, I looked for the church and I found it in the world. I look for the world, and I found it in the church. There's a strong spirit of worldliness that's trying to come in between us and God. Yes. And I believe strongly there's some of you here that got one foot in the world and one foot in church. And there's a strong attraction that the world has that's drawing you to that. And there's a part of you that don't want to let it go because you feel like you're missing out on something. And you know this, and you're struggling with this. But yet there's this strong pull. And you find yourself praying less. You find yourself reading the Bible less. And you might come to church on a regular basis, but you're coming out of habit or routine and not out of conviction. 
there's a strong spirit of worldliness in this place that is pulling us away from God and away from the church. That is interfering with our relationship with God. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, Paul warns us that in the last days, men will become lovers of themselves, lovers of pleasures, and lovers of money, more than lovers of God. Someone once wrote this, and I'm going to quote this person. It says, maintaining a love affair with the world is the same as having a mistress. Now, that might seem a little crude to some of you. But go to James chapter 4 because he's a little more direct. James chapter 4. We talked about one of the keys to walking in victory, and that is to know your place or your position as a conqueror. The second key is to be able to develop and maintain an attitude of a conqueror. But to do that, the Bible says we cannot be conformed or fashion ourselves to the things of this world. James chapter 4 and verse 4, James just said it right out. He says, you adulteresses, do you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself what? An enemy of God. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. There are things of this world that tend to creep into our lives and slowly draw us away from God. And that's what I sense to some of you here tonight. That you're slowly being drawn away because you've allowed the things of the world to creep in and take away and rob you from the relationship that you once had. And perhaps maybe that's the one thing that you are struggling with tonight. But I want to show you what the scripture says about the world because there's a lot to be said. Jesus warns us in uh, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 12 that because of lawlessness that the love of many will grow cold. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes this letter to Timothy, which is his final letter. And when he wrote this letter, he was in prison in Rome, and he was about to, well, his life was coming to an end. He knew that, and he was ready for it. He says, I finished my course, and I fought the good fight. I'm ready to go. But in this letter, he gave him some final instructions and final encouragements. And then he began to talk about the, all those his friends and fellow laborers that had worked with him and had been with him through the ministry and how many of them have abandoned him. One of them in particular was Demas. And in chapter 4 and verse 10, Paul writes, For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. Demas was one of his friends and one of his fellow laborers. But because his love for the world was more and greater than the ministry, he decided to leave Paul and the ministry because he loved the world more. When you find yourself loving the world more than loving God, it'll be easier to just simply walk away from God. It's easy to, to just walk away from fellowship. That's why I believe that so many of us lose our young people because the world has such a huge attraction for our young people. And they've drawn them away using just simple things, but fun things, because they see all of that. And when they look at their lives and look at the church and they realize this is boring. I want something more exciting. To have your foot, one foot in church and then one foot in the world. It's like a husband having a mistress. He doesn't want to leave his wife, but he also wants to enjoy the affair of a mistress. In other words, he wants the best of both worlds. And I believe there are so many of us who are in that place right now. Jesus says in Matthew 16 and verse 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his life? Go to 1 John chapter 2. 
Are you still out there? Okay. Awful quiet in here. First John chapter 2. Beginning verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from this world. Isn't it interesting? Jesus says you cannot serve two masters because you're either going to serve one and neglect the other. You're going to love one and you're going to hate the other. You can't have a mistress and have your wife. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You've got to have one or the other. And you've got to make a choice. Colossians chapter 3 says this. Then, if then you were raised with Christ, how many of you have been raised with Christ? Then he's telling us to seek those things that are above. Where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Verse 2 says, set your mind on things above. Notice what he says, set your mind, your, your attention, your focus on the things above and not on the things of the earth. For you died and your life is hid with Christ. He says, you're dead to sin and you're dead to this world, but you're alive unto God. And he says, and you are hid with Christ. I love that verse because it implies treasure being hidden away for safety and for preservation until Christ returns. The Bible says that we are hid with Christ. We are his treasures. And he's keeping us safe and secure until his return. But if our minds are set to the things of the world, then we walk out of that safety net and out of his protection and out of that security. And we leave ourselves open and allow the world to begin to seep in. And then all of a sudden, some of the things that, we were, that was not acceptable now becomes acceptable. The things that we were not that we'd not tolerate, now we become intolerable. Things become less tolerable. The things that we knew we shouldn't do, now we do. And we justify for it. Saying, oh, well, everybody's doing it. No, that's okay. It's not harmful. It's not harmless. Be careful. Be careful. Know your place as a conqueror. Even the spirit of worldliness can be subject to the things of God. And if you realize that you're a winner and you don't have to secure yourself to the things of the world and not allow yourself and then take your place and become a winner over these things and then begin to and renew your thinking and change the way you think then you become in a good place where God can begin to minister to you and begin to bring you back where you need to be. Yes. But anyway, that's enough I'll say about that. The second word I want you to look at in chapter, Romans chapter 12 is the word transformed. And the word transformed comes from the Greek word metamorpho, which is where we get the word metamorphosis. And of course, metamorphosis is simply changing one form to an entirely different form. And the only thing that I can think of is the caterpillar and, and the butterfly. You know, you got this nasty-looking caterpillar, and it goes through a process of change to become this beautiful butterfly. How can something as ugly as that can become something as beautiful as this? Well, that's what the word transform means. And so it's changing. I like the word renew. Because the word says to renew, the, to, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word renew means to renovate. To renovate means to strip away the old things, to replace it with something new. In this case, it says to renew your mind. That means to renovate your mind, renovate your thinking. Strip away all that old thinking and replace it with some new thinking. Replace it with the word of God. The way to meditate, the way to renew your mind and your thinking is simply to meditate upon God's word. Go to Psalm chapter 1. Ephesians 4.23 says, and be renewed by the spirit of your mind. <clears throat> there has to be a renewal of your thinking. 
You've got to change the way you think about yourself. You've got to change the way you think about your circumstances. You've got to just change the way you think. Psalm chapter 1. Beginning verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or fashion his ways in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the ways of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the, seat of the scornful. Verse 2 says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. And he will, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yield its fruit in its season. And its sleep does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Joshua 1.8, God tells him the same thing. He says to meditate upon these words day and night, so that you may observe to do all that is written therein, because then you will have great success. Then you will make your way prosperous. There's something about meditating upon God's word. I look at meditating, when you take the time to sit down, and meditate upon God's word and begin to study his precepts. It's like sitting in a counseling session with God. And then God begins to open up his heart and begin to share his mind. And begin to show you things. Begin to help you to understand his ways. Begin to give you his whole counsel. He shares his very heart with you. So that when you come away, you'll know his will. You'll know his heart. You know the way he thinks. You know what he wants you to do. That's why it's so important to take the time to meditate because it renews your thinking it changes the way you think you begin to see things the way God sees them rather than seeing the way you see things you know sometimes we can see something and it appears to be one thing but when you spend time with God he begins to show you that something else behind the scenes something underneath something that's underlying that God will show you and you say oh thank you Lord Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. When we take the time to meditate upon his word, we're giving ourselves, we're giving our spirits a chance to receive from God the wisdom of God, the counsel of God, the very heart of God. First Thessalonians chapter 2, in verse 13, Paul says, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word which also performs or effectually working its work in you who believe. When we take the time to read, study, and meditate upon his word, we allow that word to do a work in us. It begins to come alive in us. You know, when that word comes alive by the Spirit of God is in us, then what the Spirit of God does, not only does he make that word alive in us, but he causes us to become what the word says we are. Amen. So if the word says we're more than conquerors, if we don't think that, if we take the time to meditate upon his word, we allow the Spirit of God to make that word come alive. And cause us to become what the word of God says. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow. And able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. Hallelujah. We need to change how we think from a loser's mentality to a winner's mentality. Oh my goodness, I don't have time. Go with me. Let's. Let, right, well, I'm going to start out. Go with me to Numbers chapter 13. Let's look at some, an example in the Bible of a loser's mentality and what is a winner's mentality. Numbers chapter 13. Here, Moses received instruction from God to send... 12 men over into the promised land 
to spy out the land. So he chooses 12 men, one from each tribe. And they all cross the river and go into the land and begin to spy it out. And there they remain for 40 days. And then they came back with their report. Verse 27, we'll pick up there. Thus they told him, meaning Moses, and they said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. And they brought back some pomegranates, some grapes, and some figs to show that this land was truly a land flowing with milk and honey. But they saw something that they did not like. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak who were there. Amalek is living there. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are hanging out there. Even the Canaanites are there. How many of you know that to have victory in Christ or to walk in victory doesn't mean that we're going to be problem free in this world? Right? I mean, think about this. If we didn't have any problems in this world, what would we have victory over? What would we be winning over? These 12 spies, they all saw the same thing. They saw that, yes, the land was flowing with milk and honey. They saw that, yes, the, the inhabitants were strong. They saw that the cities were well fortified and they were certainly large. Sometimes when, we face, when we're facing situations, they will be difficult. You can't deny that. They weren't denying what they saw. And they all agreed. Until. When we go. Let's go down verse 30. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Verse 30. Then Caleb steps up. And he says this. He quieted the people before Moses. And he said. We should by all means go up and take possession of it. For we will surely overcome it. Now look in verse 31. But the rest of the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people. They are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying that the land through which we have gone in spying is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all of the people whom we saw are men of great size. There also we saw... Nephilim, the sons of Anak, and we became like grasshoppers in our sight, and so we were in their sight. The obstacle was that the people there were truly strong. They were intimidating. They were imposing. They were scary looking. That's not the issue. The issue is that ten of the spies saw that and said, you know what, we can't do this, so Let's go back to Egypt. The other two says, no, we can do loser's attitude. And who has the winner's attitude? The one with the winner's attitude are the two, Caleb and Joshua, who said, even though, yes, they are strong. Yes, the cities are well fortified. Yes, the people are strong. Yes, the land is filled with, with milk and honey, whatever. But we're going to go in there and we're going to take it anyway. Can you hear me now? I told you I'm a big winner. <laughs> they got nothing here. And so, what they saw, they, they felt that because uh, they were too strong for them, the cities were too thick and too, too impenetrable, it was impossible. So in their minds, they say, we can't do it, we're like grasshoppers. You know, the greatest obstacle that we face in life is not the circumstances, but what's in here. Yes. Proverbs 23 and verse 7 says this. Proverbs 23, verse 7. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. The ten spies saw themselves as grasshoppers. And because they saw themselves as grasshoppers, they, they felt that they couldn't come against these people. They couldn't win against them. They couldn't beat them. And so they wanted to go back to Egypt. The other two, as a matter of fact, not only did they think 
that they were losers, but they even spoke like losers. Proverbs 18 verse 21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. When you begin to think like a loser, you start talking like a loser. And when you start talking like a loser, you become a loser. And you'll never accomplish anything. But Caleb and Joshua, the only reason why they felt that they could win, not because of what they saw concerning the circumstances, because when the other ten saw the circumstances, the circumstances spoke to them and told them, we're too strong, we're too tough, we're too scary, we're too intimidating. And so they believed it. The two men, Joshua and Caleb, they didn't listen to the circumstances. They listened to God. Look in verse 1 of that same chapter 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 1 of chapter 13. Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan. And this is what he says. Which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. Joshua and Caleb heard what God said. And said, because this is what God said, because he's given it to me, then we're going to go in and we're going to take it. Doesn't matter how strong they are. Doesn't matter how fortified the cities are. Don't matter how large the cities are. Don't matter how big or how impossible the circumstances may be. If God says he's given it to me, I'm going to go take it. That's a winner's attitude. Whereas the loser's attitude is they look at the circumstances and they say, you know what? We can't do it. We can't take it. We're too, they're much too strong for us. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 7 real quick. There's nothing wrong with stuff being too difficult. It's just that when we face the difficulties in life and we tend to run away and feel that we cannot come against it, then we become losers. And the worst part is that we lose out in what God can do for us. We... we, we we shortchange God and not allow God to show himself strong and mighty on our behalf. Deuteronomy chapter 7, similar story. Children of Israel were on the other side of the river just getting ready to cross over. And God had final instructions through Moses. And verse 1 of chapter 7 of Deuteronomy says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gershites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, all of the uh, people, or ites, yes, that the ten spies mentioned. And it goes on to say, seven nations greater and stronger than you. Even God said that they were much stronger and greater than them. But God says, I'm giving it to you. I'm clearing the nations away for you. I'm going to help you to defeat them. So... Upon hearing that word, Joshua Caleb says, well, the other ten spies says, we can't, we're not able. We're scared. It's too scary, too intimidating. Let me share this last testimony, this short testimony before I close. Nothing's too difficult for God. No circumstances is too difficult for God. Last week, a young woman called me and wanted to meet with me. I sat down and met with her. And she was facing a very difficult situation. Her circumstances were very bleak. She was about to be evicted and become homeless. She did everything she could possibly do to try not to be evicted try not to be homeless. Now, I don't pretend to, to know what that's like because I've never been that way. I've never been in that place. But I can only imagine how scared she was knowing that she may end up being without a home, wondering what's going to happen with all of her furniture and all of her belongings. She tried talking to the landlord, hoping that the landlord would give her some extra time well, the landlord, as generous as he was, or she was, says, I'll give you seven days. Seven days is all she had. And she exhausted all of her resources, and she had nowhere to go, no one to turn to. There was nothing. She even called the unemployment office, and there were some issues going on there, and nothing. 
Tuesday, she calls me and says, guess what, Pastor Mike? The unemployment office called me and told me that I'm eligible for benefits. The fifth day, two days before she was about to be evicted. And God came through for her on the fifth day, providing her with the means so that she will not be evicted and not be homeless or lose her, her, her belongings. The circumstances that we face may be bleak, may be impossible, may be overwhelming, may be stressful, may be difficult. Yes, it may be. But God determined that we are winners. He called us winners. He predetermined us to win big, win overwhelmingly, no matter what we face in life. And we need to know that we are winners. We need to know our place. And we need to develop an attitude of winning. Because he says we're winners. Amen. Amen. We're going to pick up next Wednesday and finish up the rest of this. But in the meantime, let's pray. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Father, we thank you so much for your word tonight. Thank you, Father God, that you've made us winners and not losers. Thank you, Father, you made us the head and not the tail. Thank you, Lord, that we're blessed coming in and blessed going out. Thank you, Father God, that we're up, up top and not beneath. Father, thank you that you predetermined us to be winners, to be champions, Father God, for you. And Lord, we give you all the glory and praise. Father, it doesn't matter what we face in life. It doesn't matter what we're going through tonight. Father, you said we are champions. And so therefore, Father God, we're going to look at our circumstances and we're going to say, be gone. Leave me alone. Get away. Stay away. Get out of the way because we're winners. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you tonight. Thank you for your word, Father. Thank you, Father, for those that are here tonight. And you've spoken to them, ministered to them, given them instructions, Father God. Give them clarity, Father, in the name of Jesus. Thank you for what you're doing tonight. And now, Lord, we give you all the glory and all the praise that so belong to you. And for this, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.